0: everyone to another episode of mini med pods today we've got something special for all of you guys it's actually national kidney month who knew we had a national kidney month uh, so to, in celebration we would like to talk about the renal examination and hopefully give you a bigger and deeper understanding of how to properly examine the kidneys
1: yeah and so the basically the objectives for today's um, recording is to help everyone understand or everyone listening understand the clinical presentation of kidney disease. Um, and also kind of explain why we assess the things that we assess for. So not only are we going to actually talk about, you know, what are you looking for? We're also kind of have a bit of a discussion about why are we looking for things what's the path- what's the pathophysiology um, and how does it kind of explain about the disease status? And I guess it's really important to understand why we do examinations because it definitely forms a huge portion of your synthesis of what's going on with the patient when you marry it with the history and with the investigations. And it definitely informs on management and diagnosis. So the examination itself um, is quite in-depth and it focuses on a lot of things, but things you don't want to miss during a renal exam is fluid status. Um, So whether they're, they're, they're hypovolemic or hypervolemic, blood pressure, their weight, and any changes in their weight, signs of uremia, which is high uric acid in the blood, and that's usually, um, and that's mainly because of the fact that the kidneys are not able to um, filter it out of the body. Examining the heart and the lungs again for signs of any infection or fluid overload. And then just looking for basic signs of chronic disease stats. So Xiao, do you want to then start us off with general inspection? What would you do for that?
0: Sure, no problem, Simran. So for general inspection, I would start off with checking whether the patient is alert and conscious. Then I would have a look at their breathing to see if they're hyperventilating. I would also have a listen to see if they have any hiccups. Then I would sort of smell the air to see if they have a uremic fetter. And this is described as an ammonia smell. So an ammonia fish breath kind of smell. Then I would assess hydration. So as you said, fluid status is really important. So patients with kidney diseases tend to be overloaded. Uh, and after that, looking this, at the color of their skin, seeing if they're gray or brown in appearance, and then looking at the surrounding for any machines, so such as dialysis machines, and seeing that is there, if there's any lines going into them for IV lines. On that, I was just wondering, could you maybe explain why why the gray and brown color happens, as well as the
1: hiccups? Yeah, so with the gray and brown complexion, um, it's usually a sign of late stage kidney disease. And it's because of the fact that um, the kidneys are also responsible for clearing out pigments from the blood. So when you have retention of these pigments, it can actually lead to a grayish brown complexion. With the hiccups, that's um, a symptom of high levels of urea in the blood. Um, And then also on that note, you also mentioned you also want to look at whether the patient is hyperventilating, and that has to do with the acid-base balance. So kidneys are really important for maintaining that balance. When there's kidney disease, you can have high levels of um, acid in the blood, or it could be, which is, basically, which is basically known as metabolic acidosis. And the way the body compensates for that is it actually triggers the respiratory system and it causes increased breathing. So there'll be hyperventilating, so it can blow off that excess acid through carbon dioxide.
0: That's so interesting. I didn't know that the kidneys were in charge of removing pigments out of the body.
1: Yeah. it's That's really something new. I
0: know. Yeah. Kidneys are pretty important.
1: All right. So then once you've done gel inspection, we'll then go to it's a basic structure with any examination goes through, you know, the hands, the arms, the face down to the toes. So with the nails, what are you looking for in the nails shell? Well, I'm looking for leukonychia,
0: and leukonychia basically
1: white patches on the nails.
0: And there are three of them. So there's me lines, half-half nails, and Merck lines.
1: Now, I know you know a lot about these. So do you want to kind of give a brief description of what these different lines are?
0: Sure thing, no problem. Uh, so let's start off with half-half nails just because they sound and look like what they sound. So half-half nails just means that the proximal part of the nail is white and then the distal half is red. This is quite a rare sign and what you're thinking, the patient population that you're thinking of is patients with chronic kidney disease. And it's also quite common in patients with renal transplants and or dialysis. So obviously it's a sign of long-term renal failure of some sorts. Then we have Mees lines and Merck lines, which are very commonly uh, confused. So Mee's lines and Merck's lines are both white lines across the nail. At least that's what they look like. So let's start with Mee's lines. Mee's lines is usually one white line, and it's a discoloration in the nail. It can be one or two or three sometimes. The discoloration is on the nail, which means that as your nail grows out, the line will grow out with it. So this line is sort of like a moving line. It will move forwards and it will move away from the body. It's a sign of arsenic poisoning, thallium poisoning or other heavy metals. Um, And these are, you you need to know about these because these are ways um, the kidney can be damaged. So kidneys don't really like arsenic or thallium. It can, and in that case, it can also happen in renal failure as well. And another chemical that kidneys don't like is chemotherapy. So chemotherapy can also cause measles. Okay, in contrast to these lines, Merck's lines, uh, which is also known as Leuconychia striata, well Merck lines are underneath the nails. So they are caused by edema. So the, the thinking behind it is that the skin underneath the nail is swollen um, and then the pressure basically causes um, the nail to, the skin to undulate. And that causes those white lines that you see. Now, because it's a skin problem, as your nail grow, those lines won't move. The lines will stay. Um, so this is something, I guess, in order to differentiate meas lines and milk lines, you do have to look at and, and monitor those lines for a little while. Uh, and the way th- these are caused by edema, and when we think of edema and kidneys, we're thinking, well, um, of a protein problem. So if your kidneys aren't really working so well then it's probably because the filtration isn't working as well and we're losing a lot of protein through the urine. Um, And another way that you can also look at the differences between these and Merck's lines is in Merck's lines or Merck's nails, the thumb is actually not usually involved. So yeah, those are, I think the two, the three, the three ways or the three patterns to look for in leukonychia
1: really interesting. Thank you, Shell. So with the, with the nails, you can then move on to looking at, um, usually when I'm start looking at the hands, I like to then look at vital signs as well at the same time. So with your vital signs, there's five vital signs, your heart rate, your respirate, your oxygen saturation, temperature, and blood pressure. With the renal examination, you definitely want to make sure you take a blood pressure because a lot of the times you can have hypertension that can be due to kidney disease or that can cause kidney disease. And it could also be a sign of fluid overload. On the other side, you, they could be hypotensive in situations where they are hypovolemic. So it's definitely really important. And at that time, I also remember to just take the weight as well. Um, after the nails, you could also look at the wrists and the palms. So what are you looking there, Shell? So I'm looking for any signs of anemia. Um, looking at the wrist for
0: uh, tapping it out for any signs of carpal tunnel syndrome, Uh, palpating for any fistulas, looking for any bruises, scratch marks, and as well as this really cool thing called uremic frost. um, Could you maybe tell us? Oh, and then I would also test for uh, any muscle strength, um, any tenderness in the muscles and bones. And then I can get the patient to stretch their arms out and hands up um, to look for any flapping tremor, also known as asterixis, And then I can also test their uh, sensation for peripheral neuropathy.
1: Thank you, Shia. So you had a question about uremic frost? That's right. Yeah, so uremic frost is basically crystallized urea. So as I mentioned in the beginning, kidneys are responsible for filtering out um, a lot of things from the from the blood and one of them is urea when the kidneys are not working you can have um backlog of urea that builds up in the blood and usually what happens is that you can have so much that can actually crystallize on the outside of your skin and it basically looks like these like crystal deposits um on the skin that then they call which they call uremic frost you also mentioned some other things as well, which I'll kind of explain. So with anemia, you're looking for um, palmar crease pallor, and that could be due to um, nutritional, de- nutritional deficiencies like poor appetite, blood loss, um, reduced synthesis of a hormone, which is called erythropoietin, which is responsible for making red blood cells. And that's one of the functions of the kidneys, which is to synthesize this hormone, or it could just be a, due to chronic disease status. Also looking for carpal tunnel syndrome you mentioned, which is median nerve compression. So this is really interesting because it's actually seen in patients with end stage renal failure who are on dialysis for many years. And it's due to the deposition of amyloid in the carpal tunnel. So the ways you can assess for carpal tunnel syndrome is um, with the tunnel sign, which is basically tapping the wrist um, to see whether it causes a tingling sensation um, in the median nerve distribution or the other sign is Fallon sign, which is basically think of like a reverse prayer sign. And you'll have a, they'll have a similar um, response, which is a tingling sensation. In terms of the median, median nerve distribution, that involves sensation changes that occur in the thumb, the index finger, middle finger, and the thumb side of the ring finger. So basically half of the ring finger. And you can also see wasting of the muscles of the base of the thumb. Oh, and also with the asterixis, which is a flapping tremor, that's another sign of high levels of urea in the blood.
0: Out of curiosity, do you know the differences between respiratory liver
1: and kidney asterixis? All I know is it has to do with the difference in the compound that's causing it. So with like the, the flapping tremor will be the same. So with... Um, flapping tremor due to kidney disease due to urea what was the other one you were saying uh respiratory so lungs i think that's co2 retention as well i
0: think liver is the only one that's
1: different that's right? co2 retention and i think liver has to do with ammonia that's right that's right yeah so it's usually yeah you, you usually see it in those three conditions but it's due to different different like compounds or reasons that's causing the actual flapping tremor was it common in the renal ward no, I, I personally, I know it was commonly assessed. So when we used to see patients, um, definitely Asterix was a one really important thing that they assessed outside of fluid balance and listened to the heart and the lungs, but never seen it.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, because in the gastro ward, I mean, in liver, it's just as important, but instead of it being really rare, it's actually quite common.
1: Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Thanks for that. No, that's okay. Thank you for that question. Actually, really good. Um, so basically you... We looked at, we've assessed the the nails, the wrist, the hands, the arms for strength. And the strength itself is due to, for any like muscle wasting, proximal myopathy due to again, the protein losing status, the poor appetite, chronic disease status. Um, And then now we can move on to the head. So when you're looking at um, like the face, what are you looking for, Shell? So I'm looking for um, any signs of jaundice.
0: So looking at the eyes for any yellowing. And then the other thing that the kidney is in charge of, red blood cells, uh, I'm also looking for signs of anemia. So that's things like um, conjunctival parlour. Another sign to look whilst I'm at the eyes is a thing called band carathopathy keratopathy and I will let you explain this because this one I have no idea. Uh, then I look at the fundi looking for any hypertensive or diabetic changes, then I look at the ears for any hearing aids, looking at the cheeks I would look for any butterfly rash or otherwise known as a mala rash. Going on to the mouth, if I haven't smelt the uremic feta yet um, this would be the time to do so And then looking at a smile, seeing if there's any overgrowth in the gum, Um, looking at the mucosa for any ulcers and looking at the back of the tongue as well as the mucosa, I guess, for any signs of oral thrush. All
1: right, so let's go through this and explain why we're looking for what we're looking for. So in terms of jaundice, the reason why we're looking for jaundice is um, because of the retention of nitrogen-based compounds that can actually, for some reason, causes hemolysis, a breakdown of red blood cells. And that causes a buildup of one of the byproducts of red blood cells, which is bilirubin. And so basically what happens is that the body can't clear it as fast as it builds up. So there's a backlog, and that causes the deposition of bilirubin um, in places like the eyes, which is the first place you'll see jaundice. Um, and you'll see that yellow in coloring of the eyes. Anemia, which you mentioned correctly. Um, so band keratopathy, which you mention again i think so that's one of the things where i don't think you can see with your naked eye you might need to use like a lamp or like a light to look at it properly but basically what it is what it is is it's due to calcium deposits um that can occur in um situations of secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism um and this is commonly seen seen in people who have Chronic kidney disease for a very long period of time. Um, I will definitely explain this in much more detail in the in our record, in our podcast where we talk about chronic kidney disease because the pathophysiology is very interesting and also very important. Um, that's one of the main ways you can have the calcium deposits, but the other way it could be due to excessive replacement of calcium. So because of the fact that there are electrolyte disturbances or derangements, you want to replace those electrolytes. Could be situations with excess calcium replacement. Um, in terms of the butterfly rash and the mal- or also known as a mal- rash, that's due to the fact that um, it's one of the things that you see in patients who have lupus um, and that is commonly associated with kidney disease. Hearing aids you're looking for due to a condition known as Alport syndrome. And that's basically where people have hearing- problems with hearing and also they have kidney disease. Um, and then the overgrowth of the gums, which is called gingival hyperplasia. That's really interesting because Apparently, that's seen in patients who've had a kidney transplant who are on h- immunosuppressants, um, specifically calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporine and tacrolimus, um, and so that's commonly seen as a side effect of those in- immunosuppressants. And then the ulcers are due to dehydration, and the oral thrush is due to the fact that patients who do have chronic kidney disease are immunocompromised, so they're at risk of having um, infections like oral thrush. All right, moving on then to the to the next. So um, what are you looking for in the neck show?
0: So I would look for any scars, uh, particularly if they've had a pyrothyroidectomy or perhaps a jugular vein puncture, then I would assess their JVP. So this is another way to assess their fluid status. Um, I would also do a herpetodragular reflex to see if there's any elevation. And then I would palpate and listen to the carotids um, and the, the thing I think the thing to think about with the carotids is when you listen to them listen to them with the bell not the diaphragm the bell
1: thank you Xiao and also a bit more about the cries as well not only do you want to listen to it um, with the bell but when you are listening make sure that the patient holds their breath so you can actually um, listen to the carotids and the reason you're, li- you're listening to the cries is because you're listening for any bruise. Um, and if there are breweries, um, which is basically turbulent blood flow, um, that usually indicates that there might be possible atherosclerotic disease, which in which case you might be thinking about, okay, dissipation of renal arteries, like stenosis of the renal arteries, or is this kind of, um, contributing to the kidney disease? It's not, it's not a, it's not a great marker, but it's usually one of the reasons why we do listen to the carotids, um, with the scars, um, Again, yeah, you're looking for whether they've got any sort of scars due to some sort of surgery, like parathyroidectomy, due to um, tertiary hyperparathyroidism, or whether they've got a jugular vein puncture. And that's usually done in situations where you need to have instant vascular um, access for hemodialysis. And um, again, as you rightfully mentioned, the JVP, did you mention the elevation, the 45 degree angle? No, I didn't. Okay. So I'll discuss that. Sorry. So JVP, you want to make sure that the patient is positioned at a 45 degree angle and you want to be looking at the right JVP. So it's the internal jugular vein that you're looking at. You want the patient to tilt their head to the left. And what you want to do is you want to measure the length of the internal jugular vein and see if it is um, less than three centimeters. Less than three centimeters means that they're either euvolemic or hypovolemic. So it's more an indicator of fluid overload than anything else. And so, if it's more than three centimeters, you're thinking, okay, maybe there is, maybe the patient um, has more fluid than they than they can handle. And in situations where you cannot see the JVP and you want to get a better view, you can elicit the hepatojugular reflex, which is where you put a bit of pressure on the tummy, and that can give, um, and that can give you an idea as to whether the JVP rises with that with that application of pressure. All right, so. Um, Moving on, let's talk about the chest now. So this is really important because you're looking for two really, you're assessing two really important organs, Shall? Do you know, I'm sure you know which ones they are. Heart and lung. Yes. Great. Amazing. Okay. So why are we actually examining the heart and the lungs?
0: Oh my gosh. I should have said heart and lungs guys, it's plural, by the way, lungs, not just one lung. So why is it important? (laughs) Well, uh, with the heart, I always think, well, heart and kidney, well, they both exist in the same circulatory system, especially the systemic system. So if something goes wrong with the kidney, it's going to affect the heart. In the same way, if something goes wrong with the heart, it's going to affect the kidney. So I think in that way, that's why it's really important to assess the heart. And then in terms of the lung, well, again, going back to fluid, and um, going back to the episode that we did on fluid assessments, we know that one of the ways fluid overload can manifest is inside the lungs, uh,
1: in, in particular, um, acute pulmonary edema. Yeah, that's an amazing show. And I completely agree. The heart and, and the kidneys are very much related. Um, so instances, for instance, um, that things that can cause, that can affect the kidneys would be um, things that are affecting the pump of the heart. So like heart failure, any valve heart disease. Um, and then also with fluid overload, you can have, um, yes, fluid in the lungs, um, which can lead to pleural effusion or pulmonary edema, mainly pulmonary edema, which is fluid in the lungs. Um, other thing is that because they're immunocompromised, again, they're at risk of infection. So you also want to examine for any signs of infection, like pericarditis, um, due to retention of toxins, um, and pneumonia due to, again, being immunocompromised. So just remember listening to the heart sounds um, and listening to see whether you can hear the heart sounds. They're dual, there's no murmur um, and making sure there's no signs of pleural effusions like muffled heart sounds. Um, And with the lungs, you also want to see whether they've got good expansion of the lungs, any sort of um, signs of consolidation or crepitation, which makes you think of infection or fluid overload. Um, While we're at the chest, you can also then move to the back. So looking at the back, what are you looking for, Shao?
0: So another sign of fluid overload um, is also sacral edema. Um, Other things that I'm looking for at the back is uh, any tenderness of the vertebrae. Um, And then you can do the Murphy's punch sign, which actually sounds a lot worse than it actually is. Don't actually punch the patient. They will hate you forever. (laughs) Um, It's quite painful um, if it is positive. Uh, Then uh, some nicer things to do is things like oscillating, etc.
1: Awesome. Yep. So sacral edema, again, fluid overload. And what's really interesting is that patients who are actually not mobile um, and are more more like, you know, just sitting, they may not actually present with fluid overload in the legs. They might actually have overload in the sacrum area because that's the lowest point that their body's at and gravity of, with gravity, the, the fluid will pull there. So if a person does not have swollen legs, you can't rightfully say they're not fluid overloaded without actually looking assessing for sacral dina, the jvp the heart the lungs um and then with the murphy punch sign uh so basically the kidneys are located um near the basically just below the ribs like the top half of the kidney is covered by the ribs the lower ribs um it's mainly located in the t12 to l3 region um and so basically you're going to be um you're basically going to knock on the back um and it's basically on the sides near the costal angles. And then just ask the patient if they feel any pain. And the reason why you're doing that is you're basically assessing for any kidney infection. So mainly pyelonephritis where you have inflammation of the kidneys and they can pre- they can, co- they commonly present with loin pain. So you just want to just basically just tap those two or knock on those two areas and see whether it causes pain. And with the auscultation, that's your lung examination. So ideally you want to examine the lungs from the back, listening to, um, listen for any signs of crepitation or fluid overload um, some people may not be able to actually sit forward so in that case you can listen to it from the front but ideally you want to listen to so the lungs from the back all right moving on then to the abdomen so abdomen can be divided into inspection auscultation palpation um, so Xiao do you want to just run through what you do with the abdomen
0: Sure thing. So for inspection, I look for a Tenkov catheter, any scars, swelling, any signs of renal transplantation, and any distension. In terms of auscultation, I listen for renal breweries. And I should have added before with carotid breweries, if you see brewery anywhere, that's a hint that you want to use the bell because breweries are quite low and the bell is better at listening for breweries. For palpate and percuss, I uh, I would usually palpate all nine regions, do light and deep, then percuss all the nine regions as well. For organ-specific palpation, I'd palpate the liver, percuss it as well, palpate for the kidney, palpate for the abdominal aorta, the bladder, and also percuss and sometimes listen to the bladder as well. And then lastly, I would check for
1: Acides. That was a really good show. Um, so I'll just give a brief explanation of um, some of these things that you've mentioned. So um, just running it through again, so inspection, you're doing, you seeing whether the patient has a tenkoff catheter, and that's usually what's connected to um, a peritoneal dialysis machine. So if someone has a tenkoff catheter, it implies that they're on peritoneal dialysis. Um, And then they can also have scars due to peritone dialysis. They've had multiple um, operations for insertion and removal. Um, And then something about scars that I wanted to mention. So there's scars, there are nephrectomy scars, and there are renal transplant scars. So nephrectomy, which is removal of kidney, that's particularly in the loin area. So you usually see that on the side, or it can be more easily seen uh, from the back. Um, where you'd see an nephrectomy scar, a renal transplant scar is usually seen in the right and left um, iliac fossa. So just knowing where to look at for what would be really helpful, would be, will give you a lot of information. So if, it, if they don't have a scar near their loin, they've likely not had a kidney removal. If they don't have a scar in the right or left iliac fossa, they've probably not had a renal transplant. Obviously, these information, you can also get from the history, but it's more just mirroring again, the history with the examination. Um, and then with the renal breweries, um, the reason why you're listening for renal breweries is because that can point to renal artery stenosis. So something that's really interesting is that, um, again, it's not just, it's always a combination of signs and you want to then, and I always say like marry it with the, of the picture. So this is a classic example because not everyone who has a renal brewery has renal artery stenosis and not everyone who has renal artery stenosis will have a renal brewery. So statistically it's been shown that 50% of patients who have renal artery stenosis will have a brewery. Um, and other clues that you can think about is that you want to ask Does a patient have hypertension? So, if they don't have high blood pressure and you hear a bruit, it's likely not renal artery stenosis. It's not that it's definitely not, it just reduces the, the predictive value. So, if you hear a brewery and the patient has high blood pressure, that's, that makes you more think about okay, they probably do have renal artery stenosis. So, that's just something to think about. Um, and then with the palpation, again, yeah, light palpation, deep palpation with the palpation. What's really helpful is that, um, you may be able to feel a mass if they've got polycystic kidney disease. Um, the reason why you want to palpate and percuss the liver, um, it actually comes in play with polycystic kidney disease is because patients with, um, polycystic kidney disease can have an enlarged, an enlarged liver, which is hepatomegaly. And that's due to the presence of liver cysts. So cysts in the liver and cysts in the kidneys are things that you can see with polycystic kidney disease. Um, and then with the palpation of the abdominal aorta, the um, reason why you're palpating that is because you want to feel for any enlargement that could be indicative of aortic aneurysm. And that's usually because people who have chronic kidney disease can have um, peripheral vascular disease as well, which can damage the arteries like the aorta. Um, and then, yeah, important to palpate and the bladder to make sure there's no like acute retention. And then assessing for ascites. So that's really important. And again, it's part of your fluid assessment. So you basically percuss the abdomen for shifting dullness. Um, and I would advise that um, along with this recording, please do listen to our fluid assessment recording because Xiao explains it really well, how to actually assess for ascites, um, And the entire fluid assessment is very well discussed in that one. Now moving on to the last section. So going down to the lower limbs. Shao, do you wanna again give an overview of this?
0: Sure thing. So lower limbs, um, we can look for pitting edema. Then we can look for any discolorations, So things like purpura, levator reticularis, scratch marks. Um, If there's any painful or uh, bulgy bits, that could be indicative of gaudi um, And then I can also uh, use that um, opportunity at the legs to assess sensation um, for peripheral neuropathy, um, test strength for any myopathies, um, and then look for any evidence of peripheral vascular disease. So things like cool skin, hair loss, any ulcers, and also assess and palpate the pulses.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Xiao. So um, again, just going through this with pitting edema, it's again, looking for you, what you want to what you want to do is you want to start from the ankles and you want to apply a bit of pressure and see whether um, the skin leaves an impression of your fingers. And if they've got bilateral pitting edema, that's a sign of fluid overload. Um, with purpura, that's basically again, the purple red spots, and that's due to um, um, basically bleeding underneath the skin. And the reason this happens is because patients who have chronic kidney disease are um, at risk of bleeding because they actually lose a lot of um, factors that promote clotting um, and also can lead to dysfunction in the platelets. So it actually affects the quality, not only the quality, it actually affects um, clotting and um, platelet aggregation, which makes it more likely for people to bleed. Um, With levito reticularis, that's basically a lace-like purplish discoloration of the skin and that's basically caused by small little blood clots that can cause swelling in the little veins that can obstruct the capillaries um, and that could be due to like some sort of vasculitis or it could be autoimmune like due to lupus. Um, gouty tofi is really important um, at the toes because that's again a sign of retention of uric acid that can then if it's really high enough it can then deposit out and lead to gout. Um, and then again, assess for peripheral vascular disease and neuropathy as well. Um, so that's basically the entire examination. If you want to finish off your examination, you can also consider doing a rectal and pelvic examination. And that's due to the fact that males, if, there's, if males have an enlarged prostate or if females have cervical cancer, it can actually lead to obstruction of the urinary tract and then lead to um, renal failure if it's been going on for a really long to- period of time. And to finish off your examination, you can also consider doing like a bedside, some bedside tests like urinalysis analysis for looking for any protein to sign of infection. You can even do an ECG um, because a lot of electrolyte disturbances can affect the heart. Um, and you get a lot of that with kidney disease. And remember to consider doing daily ways and, and having a fluid balance chart and regularly checking the blood pressure as well. Um, and shall also mentioned. Doing, using a like using a fundoscope to assess the eyes if you haven't done that you can consider doing that as well to look for evidence of high blood pressure um, or any diabetic changes because the two most common causes of chronic kidney disease are hypertension and diabetes so you also want to then consider examining for these things as well maybe doing a bedside blood blood glucose test um, to then finish off your examination and always think about collaborating this or marrying this with the history considering what investigations you want to do and what kind of differentials or things are going on with the patient
0: thank you so much Simran I've learned quite a lot today I actually have a couple of questions if you don't mind me asking
1: yeah go ahead yeah
0: you've been on the renal ward for quite a number of weeks now and I just wanted to know what what is their routine like in ward rounds what what what's the go-to examinations and investigations that's,
1: that's a really good question actually um because obviously if you think about it realistically you're not going to do the entire examination in a timely manner you might just pick and choose what you what you need to do and especially if you're seeing a patient every day you won't repeat the exam mm-hmm. so the thing that they always do is they always do general inspection to see how the patient is are they well are they alert um and do they report that they're feeling well then they always listen to the heart the lungs the legs um, feel the legs for repeating edema, look at AVP um, for, for um, fluid overload. And um, those are the most important things. They might also look at the tummy as well. So the abdomen, and that's in situations where they've got, like let's say if they've got a 10 cock catheter or if they're complaining of tummy pain, or if they've got some sort of swelling, they might feel the tummy. Um, so those are the most important things that they look for. I guess they don't really focus a lot on like the peripheries, like knees lines and lines or look in the eyes a lot. Um, definitely look at the back. So they do assess for sacral edema, listen to the lungs. I think when they do assess a patient, their priority is blood pressure, weight, fluid status, and the flapping tremor, which again is the sign of buildup of uric acid. Mm, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for
0: letting us know um yeah I can't imagine there
1: being a lot of uh fundoscopes in, yeah no 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 um, no they don't yeah. yeah so realistically if you're thinking about it it's like how they'll probably refer them to like an ophthalmologist or an optometrist or something um if they report like any vision changes and if so it's more also mirroring with the history if they don't have any vision changes you're probably not going to look in, in the eyes using the fundoscope mm-hmm. um and also you also ask about investigation so Usually when we do have war rounds, the thing that they want to look at before we look at the patient is they want to look at the urine output, so their fluid balance chart. Um, if they're on dialysis, they look at basically um, how much fluid was taken off and whether it matches how much fluid they took in. So to make sure they're euvolemic, they always check the weight and look at the trends in the weight. So if they've lost weight, gained weight over the few days, they always check the blood pressure. Um, they always look at the blood results. They look at the basic like, blood panel to see whether there's any changes in like like if they're like losing blood or anything, they always look at um, the EGFR, the creatinine ratio, the albumin-creatinine ratio, um, and all of all those things, which we will definitely discuss in another recording because there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are things that they always check when we're looking, before they actually go and see a patient.
0: Thank you so much. Um, my final question, which is a bit of a fun one. Um, can you palpate a transplanted kidney?
1: Yes, you can. And where is it? So as so basically, as I mentioned, the transplant kidney is usually um, either the left or the right iliac fossa. So that's mm-hmm. where you have the transplant,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you want if you and so you should be able to feel it. If it causes pain, that's really concerning because then it's a sign of rejection, and you're wondering whether the person like whether um, they're like whether that that kidney is viable or whether you need to do something. So you can definitely feel it. It's, it's usually transplanted in those areas.
0: Oh, interesting. That's so lucky. Very lucky that you got to um, palpate a transplanted kidney. Anyway, yeah. guys, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Simon, for walking us and stepping us through the discussion of a renal exam. I've learned heaps. Um, you've also refreshed my memory on how to do a re- renal exam as well.
1: So thank you. So that all our reminds listeners me. out there. Oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry. That just reminds me. I forgot to mention one really important thing. When you're feeling for the kidney, remember to, to below it. So below it, which basically means you um, place your hand underneath the loin area. And then you just flick it forward while you're feeling um, for the kidney um, anteriorly. And it's mainly in the loin area. Um, if you want more information on that, you can probably do a quick search on Google and there'll be a, probably a nice video that you can watch on how to below a kidney. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, there are definitely lots and lots of video resources out there as well. Um, and of course, to all our listeners out there, the best way to practice an exam is to actually do it. So find as many patients or your friend or your neighbor or your dad. You can also try it on a dog as I have done once, um, although it doesn't work as well. Um, give it a go. Good luck, everyone. I hope this has helped you perform the renal exam um, better. Uh, let us know if there are any ideas or anything that you want to learn about next. You can contact us on minimedpods at gmail.com or uh, give us a like. Oh, definitely, if you like what you heard today, give us a like on our Facebook page, which is also Mini minimedpods. Um, you, you'll be able to find us there. Otherwise, uh, follow us on Spotify or any of your favourite podcast platforms. Uh, We hope to hear from you guys soon. We hope to be back soon. So for now, goodbye. Bye-bye.